0: Hey everybody randy here before we get into today's episode i want to thank our sponsor and that is our good friends at precision pro golf no laying up is brought to you by precision pro golf precision pro is proud to announce the next big thing in golf technology it's the long-awaited ace smart speaker a groundbreaking portable bluetooth speaker that reads distances to you over top whatever sweet tunes you're listening to while playing golf I can say we had the chance to test these bad boys out up in Michigan on tour sauce and they were great Uh, fit perfectly in the golf cart heck could even take them with a push cart just a a, a real enhancement to to our golf up there and the ace isn't just a speaker I think that's what the the, the most important thing to recognize is Uh, first of all Ace stands for audio caddy experience it's truly a golf tool that can help you know your distance and swing with confidence. Every golfer has dreamt of having their own personal caddy, and the ace is exactly that, your personal caddy that speaks to you with GPS distances to the front, middle, and back of the green, or to your customizable layup zones. I would love to get into what people's customizable layup zones are. Uh, mine, Mine are fantastic. Anyway... The Ace Smart Speaker is available for only $149.99, or you can make four easy payments of $37.50 using Afterpay. Add sound to your round by going to PrecisionProGolf.com, It's PrecisionProGolf.com, or you can find them at Amazon. It's the perfect gift for yourself or the golfer you know. You'll never second-guess your distance, and you'll never second-guess adding the audio caddy experience to your golf bag. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Trap Draw podcast. I am Randy. Uh, today is a like many episodes of the Trap Draw, a bit of a departure from the world of golf. We are joined today by Matt Stoller. Matt is a writer and former policymaker who works for the American Economic Liberties Project. His work mainly focuses on the politics of market power and antitrust. He's the author of Goliath, the 100 year war between monopoly power and democracy which came out in 2019 you can find and subscribe his Substack newsletter big and also find him on Twitter at Matthew Stoller Matt good morning welcome to the trap draw thanks for being here how are you hey thanks for having me I uh been following your work for for quite a while and have really enjoyed your book Goliath and that was the the impetus for wanting to talk to you today um before we dive into that though just to kind of give folks a background who might not be as familiar with you and your work. Um, Everybody I, I was,
1: knows who I am.
0: <laughs> I mean, I hope so, but just in case they don't. Anyone who doesn't, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, exactly, exactly. I, I know you used to work in Congress. You've had a lot of policy-facing positions. I, I was just hoping we could start with, could you walk us through kind of what your experience is and um you know how you've gotten to be in the position you are today
1: yeah so i guess what you would call me is a, a public intellectual which is a fake job um <laughs> <laughs> but most jobs not most a lot of jobs are fake a, a lot um, a lot there are a lot of think tanks which is just a bank account uh that pays rent to a place where a bunch of people sit around um, I mean, Matt, we, we, we do, do. We're supposed to pretend all this stuff is real,
0: Matt. We do golf podcasts. I mean, a, a lot of times I think our, my job is fake. So it, it, it isn't just limited to. No, uh, no,
1: like golf is a real thing. Like <laughs> golf, you actually have to like, there are, there are rules. Like it's, you can't, I mean, you can kind of bullshit your way through a little, a little bit, but like, I play golf. It's hard. Um, yo, oh, yes. <laughs> so yes. So I, I used to do a lot of work in the, in the early two thousands on Uh, Doing political organizing on the internet, which was before that was like a before that was a thing that people did. So I was I was helped develop some of the early tools for campaigns, and um, and then I got involved in uh, arguments over telecommunications policy, and eventually uh, started to work. I was working in Democratic Party politics. Then eventually started to work for. uh, Congressman in 2009 during the financial crisis, who was on the financial services committee. So I worked on the bailouts and foreclosures, and that all, then all that we fixed all that, so that all went great. That's um, good. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> so, fine. You're welcome. By the way, um, <laughs> and um, and then I worked on uh, housing policy, and I started getting into the problem of monopoly in 2011 because I. You know, working as a as a Democrat and then seeing like Democrats screw everything up um, by cons- I was like, oh, this was a crisis that was created by consolidated wealth and power. Um, why don't we consolidate more wealth and power? That should fix it. Um, and that's what we did. And I was I was like, why do we do that? And it, it's not like everybody was corrupt because it, it's like if everybody was corrupt and bought off, like that's the easy way out because then you can just be like, just get the bastards and then you're done. But in fact. The word, far worse situation is when a lot of people think it's a good idea to do that. And that's actually the situation that we're in. Um, a lot of good faith mistakes. And I, you know that's a much harder problem to fix, bad ideas. So what I realized at the time was, okay, um, people didn't, like a lot of the institutions that were lying around that were supposed to prevent financial crises were um, were dormant and we didn't really understand our history. And I started to learn a little bit more about monopoly in 2011 and 2012, particularly around chain stores. And what I realized is that the people who had helped build some of the institutions in the 30s to constrain financial crises were also heavily involved in constraining chain stores and monopolies. There was a particular congressman named Wright Patman who I wrote a lot about. Um, And he was involved in both fights. And then I eventually realized, oh, wait a second, the fight against monopolies And that was when, you know, 2010, 11, um, everyone still thought that Mark Zuckerberg was awesome. And at at that point, you know, we started to notice problems with big tech and uh, started to link that to to finance, uh, to the financial crisis. And so eventually I went back to work in Congress and saw and got much more focused on the problem of monopoly. And then, Um, And then became part of a kind of group of anti-monopoly reformers uh, who have been working in both parties to try to say, hey, we have a problem of concentrated power in our markets that is, that are constraining businesses, that are constraining workers, that are constraining people who work for a living. Uh, And from there, that's like, that's, so that's the genesis of my book um, and the kind of political movement that I am a part of. Now I'm at a think tank, which again is a fake job. Um, where I, I advise people in government say, Hey, now, you know, that guy that wants to steal everything, like maybe you shouldn't let him do that. Um, probably a bad idea. So that's, that's, you know, there's, there's details, but that's the gist of
0: it. Sure. Sure. Uh, before I, I want to dive into, uh, your book and then I think that'll be a good off ramp, provide a lot of off ramps into, um, some current issues, but what I've kind of admired about you is your ability to kind of piss off people on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, you used to work in, within the democratic party, not the, the party. I, do, itself, I still do it, in democratic Somebody's party circles. Yeah. How, how do you identify now? Do you, do you, can you identify with, with either major party and what, I mean, this is such a hard question, but like, what's your take on American political parties today?
1: So I, I, still identifies as a democrat you know i've gotten less interested in partisanship over time cuz both parties to me are actually pretty similar you know they have different observations about culture and there are definitely fights but when you get down to like the guts of how you make things and move things and sell things like the underlying question of our commerce you know no one kind of in either party really pays that much attention. You know, this is where Trump was right. There's like a deep state of people that, um, that kind of run our policy. And these are people in big law firms. There are people, um, you know, who are in bureaucracies and they're, you know, a lot of economists and they're nearly not susceptible to democratic pressure, right? So elections don't really change how they operate. I So I think that's kind of like the core political problem that we have. And as a result, you see, you know, our our government, our our public institutions have been effectively dormant for a really long time and can't wield power. And we need a government that can wield power. I think what, what confuses people is that the Republicans and the Democrats, like the Democrats are like, we're the party of government, but actually they don't want the government to do anything. They just want it to be bigger and more bureaucratic and annoying. And the Republicans pretend to be the party that's against government, but actually they just want to like privatize everything, which means that you have a government, but it's like, it's just, you have to go through a bunch of bad contractors to get to anything. And it's even more bureaucratic. So it's like, no, like actually getting in there and saying, we want a smaller government that is strong and just like people that do things and that constrain markets um, and uh, not constrain markets that constrain Market power and make sure that people have access to markets, access to the ability to buy things and make things and sell things and move things. That's kind of like the party, you know. That's the political faction that I think would be dominant if we could figure out how to how to organize it. Um, but like that's that's kind of the politics I identify with. So let me just give you a quick example. So, sure, um, this is something everybody knows. Like beef, right? Beef is a, you know, beef is what's for dinner, right? Um, so 85% or 90% of meat packing or beef packing is controlled by four companies and the big four. So if you're a consumer, beef prices are at a record high right now, but if you're a, if you're a cattle rancher, you're actually being paid almost less than you've ever been paid before. And this, so what, what's happening in the middle is the spread, right? Which is, which is the difference between those two things which is what the meat packer takes. And then then the retailer gets some of that, but the retail share has been constant. The meat packer share has like, you know, doubled or tripled over the last five years. And there is a price fixing case against the beef packers that's been going on since since the the alleges that they've been doing, they've been engaged in price fixing since 2015, opposing the beef packers and saying they should be broken up. They should not, that like their CEOs should be criminally prosecuted for price fixing, which is a form of theft. That would help consumers certainly because the price of beef will go down, but it would also help cattle ranchers who are essentially a bunch of small businesses in the Midwest and parts of the South. And like that, that what, what kind of politics is that, right? I mean, it, it's, it's just kind of, and all the meat packers, or two or three of them are owned by like Brazilian multinationals. So it's like, what kind of politics is that? When you, when you talk about it in a normal way, no one really would oppose that. It's just all of the annoying nerds who are like, no, it's just supply and demand, Um, which is like, it's not if you've ever talked to like a cattle rancher or, you know, and yeah, like, they're just like, there's the tyranny of irritating nerds that are everywhere in DC and, and that are always explaining why no one can do anything about that problem. And the longer that we have this situation, the more problems fester and get worse and that's where we are right now and like to the point where where we where people actually lose their faith in democracy itself they just believe that government which is us right government our democratic government that's us that we cannot govern ourselves because no cuz we none of our, our pro, we can't seem to fix any of our problems and i think that's where that's kind of where we are right now there's just this tremendous loss of faith in our capacity for self-government.
0: And in your work, I, I'm do you find that there are some I just one more point on kind of the American politics today. And you're saying, like, well, what kind of politics is that? I'm fascinated where these issues arise that make for very weird bedfellows between kind of factions on the right with more populist, you know, farther left factions. Um, do you do you find that there are So I'm like weird matches if those two parties could just come together and, you know, get some stuff done on on some of these issues or what's your sense there?
1: There are factions in both parties that are more populist. The real key of the real core of it is like there's a split within business, right, within the commercial world. So you've got like monopolists. So the traditional model, the pre 1980 model of politics was you have small business or they used to call it small capital. And workers, right. And, and workers, I don't mean, you know, just service workers or, or manufacturers. I mean, anybody that works for a living. So this could be like an engineer, an artist, uh, a farmer, you know, people that produce and often people that produce have employees. That's what a small business is or a medium sized business, you know, and that, that group of people that does business uh, that works versus the middlemen in the economy, which would be the financier and the monopolist, right? And that's what politics used to be. It used to be saying, okay, we need people that work for a living to be protected from people that are the middlemen. You need middlemen in an economy uh, in a lot of different places, but no middlemen can't gain control over an economy or else they start to grind down the productive capacity of the economy, which is what's happened. and. I think you see, I don't think there's like a far left or far right element to it. I think you can like people on the far left and the far right are like more willing to be like the whole system is crap and talk about it in like interesting, um, maybe not interesting, but like more self-described radical ways. But the reality is, you know, you, what you find is that there's frustration with dominant market power, like in every faction of of every party. And then there's support for dominant market power in every faction of every, uh, of every party. Like, and I'll just give you a weird example, like the left, they're very split on monopolies because a lot of them want monopolies because they think, oh, well, we'll socialize the economy and then monopolies are good for that because if you get someone that controls all of whatever meatpacking then all you need is the government to take it over or regulate it and there you've got government control and that's what we want cuz we're the left. I'm not saying the left thinks that. I'm saying part of the left thinks that. Part of the left is populist like me. They're like, "Oh, we don't want centralized control of anything. That's not fair. We want more localized control and you know, we like farmers markets and that kind of thing." And that's so that would be like a dispute there. And on the right you have some something similar where you have people who are very into multinationals and big business. And then you have like nationalists that are like, no, we need, to, we need to make things in America, which is the same thing as saying we need like to do things locally, right? I mean, it's, so the factions, you know, are, are um, it, like polit- the conventional politics really doesn't explain how to think about this. And then, then I, I guess last week, the House, of, the House of Representatives, I have some good news. They actually just uh, passed a bill to regulate the ocean uh, carrier uh, shipping segment of the economy. Like we have really big problems at the ports, mm-hmm. um, supply chain disruptions, and whatnot. Oh, guess what? Congress like did the right thing. They passed a bill saying that the Federal Maritime Commission gets to um, gets to like impose rules of the road there. I mean, just to give you a sense for why it's like as bad as it is. I mean, there's other reasons. Like so, this is an oversimplification, but. The ocean carriers, there's there's three alliances of ocean carriers. They're basically a cartel. They made this year. They made about 150 to 200 billion dollars in profit. They're all foreign owned. They made like 10 billion dollars of profit last year. So it's like they are at big tech levels of profitability right now. And they make money when stuff doesn't move because like airlines get to charge fees for like baggage fees and all that stuff. Like the, the ocean carriers, they get to charge fees when you don't move your boxes fast enough. And guess what, in a giant traffic jam, you don't move your boxes and then they get to charge you fees. And then they're like, oh, well, this traffic jam seems to be working out for us. Yeah. And the bill that Congress passed was basically says, you can't do that. You can't make money off a traffic jam. So like that's, it's good that Congress, you know, that ha- the House did that, the Senate's gotta, gotta move on it. So it, don't worry, Congress could still be annoying. I know you were worried, but, <laughs> um, but that reason that that bill passed is because, all of basically all of American industry got together and said like, we have a problem with the shipping sector. And then you had these foreknown shipping firms that said, no, no, everything's working out great. And, you know, Congress was like, oh, well, it seems like that's not true. And so there you have, that's not like a far left or far right thing. In fact, neither the left nor the right even noticed that this was happening. So that's like a totally within business um, type, of, type of arrangement. I mean, I sit in a think tank and I know people who are in think tanks and it's all a fake, it's all fake jobs and none of us do anything real. So like the people that are shipping things, they do real things. And they're like, we have problems. And they were able, you know, the, the Federal Maritime Commission actually did a really good job studying this. And then they all like kind of put this put this law through and none, nobody like me noticed. And so we weren't able to screw it up. Um, so that's the kind of politics I want. It's just like basically for me not to have to do anything. <laughs>
0: That's, yeah, that's the dream. That's the dream. I, I'd love to kind of dive in uh, to your book a little bit, because I think that will set up some uh, like the shipping problem now. Uh, there are a few kind of hot button topics that I'd love to get your opinion on. Um, but your book is, is obviously robust. It, it covers 100 years of, um, as the title suggests, um, a, a war between monopoly power and democracy you obviously you don't have to recite the whole book but in the best you can how how can you catch people up on that 100 years of american history and set the stage for where we are today as a society
1: um yeah so i love that you're like the book is robust
0: which is another way of saying it's too long no it just (laughs) there's just a ton of information it's 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 I, I like it. that, but
1: <laughs> it's really good. I mean, like it's, I wrote it. I, I spent a lot of time trying to make it fun. And I think it is fun. It's just, um, cause like, you know, people often are like, I, I don't like uh, politics or economics or business. And I'm like, yeah, but that's cause it's like made out to be super boring. But actually it's like, people love fantasy sports or, or whatever. And it's like, that's the same thing. It's, it's just that this involves all the money and power in the world. Right. So it's like, you know, the way, yeah. I mean, I'm like, I've been trying to figure out like, how do you explain conspiracies, like actual conspiracies? Cause there are conspiracies, but they're pretty much in the open and they're super boring. And that's the way that they like work. It's like, it's not the Illuminati cause that makes them sound way more compelling. Yeah. They're just really boring. Like people that make a million dollars a year and are like play Scrabble on the weekends. Like that's the way it works. And they're so boring. I can't tell you how boring these lawyers are. Um, anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. So, um, uh, I guess I should tell you about my book, because um, that's what you asked. So, yeah, so Goliath. Uh, it, it came, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, it's not a policy book at all. It's just a straight history. And it tells a story of how Americans thought about the problem of monopoly. From like the early 1900s until basically the financial crisis, although really kind of like ends in the 1970s. And the centerpiece of the story is a congressman named Wright Patman, who is from Texarkana, so which is like the you know rural area of Texas that bordering Oklahoma, Arkansas, and um, and he he was in Congress from 1929 uh, until 1976, so 46 years, and he was the he was a chair of the banking committee in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And then in the uh, 1930s, one of the first, the first major thing that he did is he impeached the Secretary of the Treasury named Andrew Mellon, who's an incredibly um, interesting and corrupt figure in American history. Um, and Patman was a was a you know a, a straight up populist Democrat. Today that seat is very Republican, uh, but but similar in some ways. Um, and he just, you know, it was a, it was a really poor district, represented uh, cotton farmers, oil wildcatters, uh, and, and just a straight up populist who went after the bankers. That's what he, that's what he wanted to do with his life and that's what he did. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there was, who was it, um, there's a congressman who said, you know, I, you know, I, I never really followed what Patton was doing. But whenever I'd go home, the bankers would always complain about him. And I, I always knew he was doing something good, right? And that was like the gist of it. Um, but, but Patman went after, you know, he went after concentrated power. So he went after Andrew Mellon because Andrew Mellon was like fascinating. Like he was basically a billionaire, one of the richest men in the country, but also, um, you know, controlled when because he was Secretary of the Treasury from 1921 until 32, he controlled the the Bureau of Revenue, which was the IRS. He also controlled the Federal Reserve at the time because that's how it was structured. And he used the treasury to engage in insider trading to benefit his own kind of private financial empire. He owned owned Alcoa, which was an aluminum monopoly that was like the high-tech company of its day. Um, He owned, you know, he's on the board of 99 different banks. He owned Gulf Oil, which is now today Chevron. Like, it it was really interesting, like kind of villains in American history that people don't know a lot. He put Alexander Hamilton on the ten dollar bill, um, and uh, anyway, so there, the 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 book frames the New Deal as a battle between monopolists and uh, and democratic forces, right? Not like oh, the New Deal is when we expanded the size of the government and made unions. It was like no, the country was was governed as it is today, I think, by a few dominant financial actors. At the time, it was the JP Morgan and the Mellons and the DuPonts um, and the Rockefellers. And the New Deal was about trying to successfully constrain them and uh, breaking their power. And that's what what happened. And I kind of tell that story through Patman and Mellon and the, the battle between them and then the battle that it got picked up by other New Dealers in the administration. And then... What happened after that? Like the periods in the 50s and 60s where the institutional fabric of the New Deal started to get taken apart. And then in the 1970s, 75, when Patman was overthrown by a, new, a set of new um, actors in the Democratic Party. Uh, and this would be like the Bill Clinton generation who for a variety of reasons in their intellectual history had adopted an anti-populist frame. They'd, decided that they thought concentrated power was good. Um, and that they came out of the counterculture and they rejected like kind of the ideas from, from the Patman generation. The kind of main operational figure, like the intellectual figures were John Kenneth Galbraith and Richard Hofstetter, who's an economist and a historian. And then the operational figure was Ralph Nader. And Ralph Nader built a lot of the modern democratic party apparatus. So that overthrow happens in 1975. And then there's like a kind of, takeover of the Mellon school of thinking about political economy. And then, so the end of the book is sort of describing the rise of junk bonds and the merger wave in big tech and the consequence of of that like way of thinking and the political takeover in the 1970s. So it's a way, the book is a way of explaining in my view why people that I was working with in um, in, uh, 2009 and 10, the history that they had in their heads and the reason that they thought, okay, the, what, what we need to do um, to deal with a concentration of wealth and power is to further concentrate wealth and power. It's because out of the, in the 1970s, a generation that took over said, we, we have an insufficient concentration of wealth and power. Capital is too constrained and that's causing all sorts of problems. And, uh, and, and it's bad for our society because we need to trust experts and that generation took over and then trained the following generations. And that way of thinking is still, uh, was still dominant. I think it's being challenged now. I think there's a lot of different uh, types, uh, reformers who are saying, actually, we need to, to have public governance and restructure, like decentralized concentrated wealth and power. Um, but, but that is why like our institutions all seem to be misfiring.
0: And that's a great segue because what I was going to, ask you next is, uh, speaking of those winds of change, perhaps I know, um, the appointment of Lena Kahn to the federal trade commission in, in your opinion, is that a a pretty significant signal that things are going to change or what, I guess if so, and and if not, what would be some other, um, signals that kind of point to, uh, perhaps a shifting environment?
1: Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a lot of things that are changing. You have, you know, two years ago, there was, uh, there was very little hap- happening at the antitrust agencies. Today, you have five antitrust suits against Google in uh, different levels of government. You have uh, two against Facebook, one against Amazon. I-, I think you're gonna see one against Apple soon and probably more against Amazon. So that's like a really significant change, you know. Just like the the antitrust enforcers are moving, and they're asking to break these companies up. And then politically, you know, two two of the suits got started under Trump. The others got, kind of got started uh, under Biden. Some of them are state level, so it's not like they all ordered them. But but the point is, is that they're they're actually bipartisan. And then you're seeing. Um, Changes like the like I just mentioned, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, so re-regulating the shipping sector, um, and that's really outside the bounds of like what we would conventionally call politics. And then you have like Lena Khan, right? So Lena Khan is a uh, she's a 32 year old lawyer who is appointed to be the head of the Federal Trade Commission, which is the main antitrust agent or one of the two main antitrust agencies in the U.S. and She's kind of the rock star of the antitrust reform movement. She wrote a paper critiquing and outlining the changes that took place in the late 1970s, early 1980s that led to the dominance of large firms. That paper went, uh, so the Yale Law Review paper went viral and she became a kind of, probably the most influential scholar on antitrust that we've had since, since Robert Bork, who was the guy that took apart our antitrust regime in the 70s and 80s. And so now she's in a very important uh, policymaking position. You, Joe Biden put put out an executive order that said that uh, competition and market power is a core concern across government. So not just the antitrust agencies, but the Department of Transportation and the um, you know the nuclear what regulatory commission and you know all every all parts of government need to take it into account. Yeah. Um And. You know, the, on the conservative side, the, the Republicans held, uh, an, I think, an, an important oversight hearing on pharmacy benefit managers, which is this like niche area of the healthcare system where you have a lot of monopoly power driving up uh, prescription drug prices. And, and so the, the, ref, the reform kind of impulse is happening on both sides of the aisle. And at the same time, you have more research coming out showing just how concentrated our economy is. So since uh, since the last over the last 20 years, 75% of industries have gotten more concentrated, and you see you know concentration is a, is now a systemic feature in the American economy. Everything from supermarkets and retail to um, you know cheerleading to survey research technology to like search and social funeral parlors like the big stuff and the small stuff, it's, it's, uh, it's concentrated. And I think there's increasing awareness that that's a, 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 a key feature of our economy. And that's causing a bunch of, of there to upstream from a bunch of social problems that we tend to look at in isolation.
0: Do you think America is I, my sense is and I, I guess my question would be to correct me if I'm wrong and if it's a correct assumption um, it seems like a lot of the bigger antitrust push has emerged from Europe first and America's kind of on the not they're not trailing necessarily or maybe they are but I, where do you assess America's appetite for you know dealing with concentration and across the market uh, in terms of, You know other global countries and and unions such as the eu
1: yeah i mean they the europeans like talk a big game and they i think were you know they were ahead of the curve a couple years ago in that they wanted to do a little bit of something here or there but they didn't want to do very much they just wanted to talk a big game and now the so but that was useful right? Because nobody thought there was anything wrong with with big tech in 2016 or uh, 15. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg, like the rumor was that when Hillary Clinton won the presidency in 2016, she was going to, and of course she was going to win, she would appoint Sheryl Sandberg to be the Treasury Secretary. And that, you know, that didn't work out. But like, people can't imagine that today. But like, that's was conventional (laughs) wisdom. I mean, um, and, so just having the Europeans say, "Oh, maybe you know, Google isn't isn't, isn't every isn't the best thing ever." Um, you know, <laughs> maybe they shouldn't be allowed to steal everything. Maybe just only nine. You know, that was a big deal, um, but they haven't really advanced from there. And um, uh, the the American, American enforcers have started to do a lot more. And then you've seen enforcers from around the world. I think the Australians have been very aggressive, and um, uh, the British. The, the have been very aggressive. So you're you're um, I think what you're starting to see is like a, a global response. And I think the Europeans, actually, the Chinese probably have been the most aggressive on on antitrust, which is depressing for me because I'm a I'm a I'm not a fan of the Chinese government. But it it's uh, they're the ones who've done you know. And actually, the other the other country that's done a really good job on this is Russia, which is pretty <laughs> like it's like a bummer to watch that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, um, but there's like a, and they, they, you know, what the Chinese did is they looked at what we were doing and they said, that seems to be the right thing. Well, let's do that, but a lot more of it. Um, and that's actually what we need to do. We just need to do a lot more of what we are doing. So yeah, there's kind of a global response a global recognition that dominant market power, particularly in the tech area, but not just there is important and, and a problem that we have to take on.
0: Well, I want to ask you about three specific companies or areas, if, if you'll allow me. And, and the first was on my list was Facebook. Um, it, in, in your opinion, is Facebook kind of the face of the fight uh, against big tech? And um, I, as best you can, I know this is a, another difficult question, but I, how do you kind of distill down the central issues at play um, around Facebook right now?
1: I, I mean, I think the face of big tech is it changes. So maybe like maybe the face right now is Amazon, which wouldn't allow their employees in their distribution center that was hit by a tornado to leave. And so a bunch of them died. That might be today's face of big tech. Facebook is always doing something, you know, obnoxious. Uh, I think like, I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most, you know, well-branded and Like Lee's charming executive, like he's a real liability for Facebook. Google was smarter in that they got rid of their like their super creepy executives. They just got rid of them and hired a McKinsey like smooth talking guy who's like a sociopath, but he's smooth. So people don't like they're not like upset with 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 that CEO. But Mark Zuckerberg is like an. But they're all like Apple. um, Apple is. Is really dangerous. So is Amazon. So is Google. uh, So is Facebook. They're just dangerous in sort of slightly different ways. The problem with Facebook is that fundamentally it's a threat to our democracy. And the problem, like Facebook, you know, it's there's, I guess there's three things. Like one is to Zuckerberg and Facebook, like laws are suggestions. They just don't, you know, they they don't care um, if you put, privacy rules, or you say you're not allowed to defraud advertisers or whatever it is, they just, they don't care. They're like, we'll just pay some lawyers. Maybe we'll have to pay a fine or whatever. And we'll probably even get a tax break on the fine. So that's how they think about the world. You just can't have a, a just society where the rule of law doesn't apply to the powerful. The The second problem is that they've concentrated control of communications and advertising, and which is another way of saying speech. And so there's a lot of like anger on the right and left people saying, you know, Zuckerberg needs to let people say this, but not that. Um, But the problem is that Zuckerberg has this amount of control and he has that amount of control because he has um, four products. I mean, depending on whether you wanna call messenger a product, which Facebook does with more than a billion users. And so his choices around speech are censorship choices and that's inappropriate. Um, and then his choices around consolidate around fin- uh, financing, advertising, are also censorship choices. And the the consolidation of power of social over social networking has uh, also leads to bad privacy because when Facebook had to compete with MySpace, the way they the way they did that is they said, well, we're a safer choice. Like we're better than MySpace because there's not a lot of creeps on Facebook, and we protect your data. They even allowed users to vote on Facebook's terms of privacy. And then once they defeated MySpace and bought up, bought out um, their their competitors, they started surveilling everybody, including you know their their business partners. And it doesn't and and making a very unsafe environment. And it doesn't matter to them if their advertisers or users don't like it because they really have nowhere else to go. Like if you broke them up, you would see Facebook engaged in product differentiation. You know, Instagram would say, oh, well, we're a safer place than, than Facebook blue. And WhatsApp would, would say, okay, we're going back to our original like privacy centric view. So you'd, 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 see them start to compete in, in ways that could be healthy. The third part is, is that th- this isn't necessarily an antitrust problem, but you could look at it as an antitrust issue or as a, comp, a conflict of interest. They they c- collect data on, on everyone and they compile these really detailed dossiers and they collect this data by surveilling about a million um, web properties and, and apps. And then they will follow you around the web and give show you advertisements. And what this effectively means is that they are taking the, the information, the proprietary business information of every company in the economy, like say the say the Wall Street Journal. They're, they're taking the Wall Street Journal's subscriber information and readership information. And then they're using that to advertise to the Wall Street Journal's readers on the, you know, on Facebook. And they're competing with the Wall Street Journal for that, that advertising money. And that's just a losing game for, for that, for the Wall Street Journal or for any publisher that has to, um, uh, that has to compete. It's just an unfair marketplace. And that's what we call surveillance advertising and people find it creepy, but it fundamentally, the, the problem is that it's, it's uh, incentivizes because Facebook makes money off of, what other people produce instead of those people making money off of it, it creates an incentive to produce cheap clickbait fraudulent stuff. uh, And, and that's why the web has become like a cesspool of clickbait.
0: (laughs) Yes. If you put on your prognosticator hat, like five years from now, what do you, do you see uh, drastic changes with Facebook? Do you think, these lawsuits uh, will be effective in, you know, breaking up aspects of that company? Will Cheryl or, or uh, Mark be in jail, perhaps? What, what, what do you think happens five years out from now?
1: I, I can't, like, you know, the future, who, kn- who knows, right? I mean, I didn't sure. think we should be as successful as we have, we've been um, in the last five years. You know, it's, it's just been remarkable how um, successful we've been on the, on the anti-monopoly front. If we continue this trajectory, and there are reasons to think that we will, and there are reasons to think that we will not. I I think what you'll see is criminal charges against uh, Facebook or uh, big tech executives. And then, you know, and you'll see breakups. You'll also start to see a, a, a radical revamp of merger policy. So a lot of these firms like big tech firms are a result of mergers, but there are mergers across the economy which are consolidating um, wealth and Power. I mean, you see it in every, every area. You know, you used to be able to buy a certain kind of tennis racket. Now it's it's cheap, It's cheap. cheaply made or more expensive or whatever it is. And it's usually because there's been a bunch of mergers. And, you know, you see that everywhere. Um, so there are going to be changes to that kind of policy. And I, I think we will we will have broken up these companies and, and um, you'll see a more innovative media space, like m- more people will be able to make money doing um, actually producing trusted content. That's, that's the, that's the hope. Um, That's the dream.
0: Yeah. Somewhat related the, the other kind of topic. And I realize we're not really doing these, these topics justice. I mean, you you just can only get to so much in five, 10 minutes, but the news last week about the arrangement between Apple and China uh, that Tim Cook signed, I know you've kind of banged against it on on Twitter and, and written a bit about it, but how, how is that indicative of kind of the U.S. relationship with China over these last couple decades? And, and what what are the problems with that? And just so people know, I guess, or Matt, you could probably describe it much better than I can. Can, can you talk about the news that came out um, about the the Apple deal with with China last week and how that's indicative of of larger problems?
1: Yeah, so, so there was just reporting from the information that Apple over the last, I don't know, 10 years has made significant deals with the Chinese government to invest hundreds of billions of dollars in China to make sure that uh, Chinese producers are, are taught key Apple technologies, that they are making sure that, that, that uh, the Chinese government gets access to you know all the surveillance of iPhone users that they want. E- effectively, like China controls a significant amount of Apple's business. That's that's what the the gist of the story is. And we make almost all of our iPhones there, and and much much of our kind of key technology uh, products are are assembled at least, and and many of them, uh, a lot of the components are made in China. And I, you know, what it what it says is that. We are absolutely dependent on a rival power for key things that we need. And the, the, I think the Chinese government has very different aims and wants to basically undermine democratic norms worldwide and democracy here. And I don't think they care that much about how we govern ourselves, but they certainly don't want us to have free speech because then we would criticize China. And they're explicit about this. So it's a very, the, the world that, that China wants is a very different world and a much scarier world than the one that we're living in right now. Even though a lot of things seem to be going wrong, that's kind of the reality. And the key mechanism that the Chinese government uses to achieve their aims is are American monopolies. Like that's their main tool. And I think the Apple story shows that, you know, Tim Cook does whatever China wants, but then he doesn't do anything the American government wants because he could just like, you know, has a, a political operation to prevent that. I mean, Elon Musk is another good example. Like, Elon Musk is incredibly humble when it comes to the Chinese government; praises them all the time. And then here, he's just like constantly making fun of the Securities and Exchange Commission and Biden and and Elizabeth Warren and you know, and like the idea of paying taxes. Like, there's just this very different view, and he like again, like the Chinese government said to Elon Musk, you have to build us an electric car industry and transfer all these key technologies. And we wanna be an export hub for, for you and control your company. And he, he allowed them to do that. He's the richest man in the world now because of it. So like we have a really serious geopolitical problem because China is exploiting our own corruption to undermine our own, um, our, our ability to actually govern ourselves. And the like American monopolies and and corporations not the Tesla's a monopoly but like um, a, but dominant firms are are a key mechanism that the Chinese government uses it's a smart thing to do I mean they you know I don't want to be like hats off to them but it's like it's our own weakness I mean we can we can fix it if we want
0: do you think we will I again these are these are hard questions I know but I well, know, either we will or they will yeah i mean do you think do you think we bring back the manufacturing we've lost like how do, how do you read this playing out i i guess kind of the same question with facebook like where, where do you see this this issue with china developing like where, where where do we go from here
1: gotta bring manufacturing back right i mean that's like just the reality like um there's a uh I don't know any other way to. Um, I don't know. If, you know, we've got to raise tariffs and uh, start making start making iPhones here. I mean, that's a. It's a it's a hard thing to do. It's not impossible, and it just requires work. Like that's really all it is. It just requires work. We got to get back to that. A lot of our elites don't know how to do anything. You know, I mean, I started off by talking about how think tanks are fake jobs, but like McKinsey is a fake, it's a fake thing. Like management consulting, it's fake. It's not anything. It's just telling executives, giving executives an excuse to make the decision they want to make anyway. A lot of our legal apparatus is fake. And and I don't mean that it's like, they're not, you know, they're very busy all the time, but they're not actually doing anything that's actually, that's productive. A lot of our merger activity, these, these are fundamentally unproductive activities. A lot of like surveillance advertising, you know, it's it's not a good idea to have a society where your smartest people that you train and give power to focus on getting people to click on ads or focus on shuffling paper around so that you can you know shut down factories and increase the return on equity a little bit. Like you need people working on hard things, like how to make um, make products that we need, make some better semiconductors or or actually difficult endeavors new and new methods of energy production and we don't we dedicate our talent to you know very polite forms of arson uh
0: i've got i love when you get going on on consulting and yeah the i i i love it it seems like such a monumental task though to reshape I mean, I, I, it feels to me like that's talking about like reshaping society and transforming so many th- aspects of our world. I, I don't know. I get a little pessimistic. I don't know if you feel in the end, optimistic or pessimism or, I mean, it, is yeah, it possible?
1: I mean, it's, yeah, so, so, so a friend of mine, so not a friend, my grandfather used to have, it. he had this joke where he said, um, I was feeling down and my friend said, cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse, <laughs> right? It's an old, it's an old, it joke. Um, I often feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheer up. Things could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you never know. Right. I mean, things are always, yeah. yeah. Things always felt like they were falling apart. Right. Like it's 1955, which you can idealize as sort of like, Oh, well, look, we're taking on monopolies and, you know, there was was things were way more egalitarian in our economy. And other people would be like, yeah, but it was like racial segregation was a thing. And also people had to hide under their desks for fear of a nuclear attack. So yeah, you know, things are always kind of like a mess. And we often muddle through and we'll probably figure that out this time too. It's usually a bad idea to bet against America.
0: Yeah. All right, last last kind of main topic I wanted to ask you about. I loved your post. I believe it was last week about cryptocurrencies. I'll be extremely honest: the whole world of, of crypto and NFTs and all of that, it, it just makes my head spin. So i I would direct people um, to check out. It was on your your Substack newsletter. Um, in it. One of the lines you write is, and and I'm quoting you, I often get emails from proponents of crypto as an anti-monopoly tool. And a lot of smart people that I respect believe that it is based on groundbreaking technology that will sweep the world. I don't see it that way. Could you kind of break down your thinking on crypto and what's going on? um, And has anything changed since last week? I know there have been some counter arguments made to your piece. Uh, Yeah. So,
1: so this is a longer conversation, but crypto is basically just, uh, a, cool, a cool way to like have ledgers, right? It's just like a spreadsheet, except it's, like distribu- it's a distributed spreadsheet. So instead of saving your Excel spreadsheet on your desktop or your hard drive, you would save it in like a million different people's hard drives. And so you can't, it's hard to, you don't need a centralized repository. So it's like kind of cool technology but it's fundamentally just a like it's a ledger. And then they they put markings in this ledger or different, you know, you can create as many ledgers as you want. And these markings are called Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever the other types of coins are. And they have different rules. Um, and then they call it, they're like, oh, and this is money. These are coins. But they're really just markings in a ledger. And they're not regulated. So, you see the same things you see in any unregulated um, speculative endeavor, it's just like fraud and laundering and various forms of scams. And like, because it's become such a big thing and, and like there's an emperor's new clothes to vibe to it um, and there's a lot of bullying. So if you say, oh, this is just a marking in a ledger, what makes it real? People are like, they're like, you just don't understand. <laughs> Um, You're stupid, and people get are like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to step there. Like, no one is saying this is all just a giant scam, but it is. I actually say no one. I mean, a lot of people are pointing out it's a giant scam. Um, But the reason that it's given lift is because, you know, what is money? Like, money is also just a marking in a ledger. And they're like, what is money? That's the same thing as the dollar. Um, This is kind of true, except that that the dollar also has a country behind it with a big military and hundreds of millions of people who believe in it and a poll regulatory system to manage that manage its money right it's like a very real money is not just belief although belief does matter so that's like that's what what all this a lot of this crypto stuff is it's like a neat technology that's been turned and spun into a religion um and based on like a it's basically like a Ponzi scheme religion. Um, and I'm not saying that there isn't going to be cool stuff that will eventually come out of this technology, but, like, right now, the technology doesn't really work. Uh, it's not very efficient. It doesn't do anything that they say it's going to do. It's just a bunch of
0: speculation. That will end in tears. <laughs> <Wee>! <laughs> and then, how do, like, NFT non-fungible tokens do, like where where does that those are just other ledgers that's really okay. all
1: it's It's like not i mean there are some things you can do in video games with nfts but like there's almost nothing that you can do with the with it's called the blockchain that's the underlying technology there's almost nothing you can do with the blockchain that you can't do without the blockchain okay right? like there's there are very few the, no one has given me a use case except money laundering um <laughs> And actually, you know, what's funny is, and I think the best argument against blockchain being like a meaningful technology, and I'm not saying it's not meaningful, but it's like the the dirty secret of of the internet is that the first industry to adopt fringe technologies is always the porn industry. Because those are people that are like kind of doing something that's not, that's like on the edge of society, but not straight up illegal. And they have not adopted any of these web 3.0 stuff, which is what people call it. They haven't adopted blockchain or anything like that. And it's because it's like, it's not useful. (laughs) It's just, it's not even useful for edge cases. Um, So I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to be like this thing that you hear about all the time from legitimate people is a scam, but there we go.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would, I mean, your line of kind of the emperor with no clothes, that's, that's always the sense that I think I felt with it, but again, I, I also recognize that I, I just don't know hardly anything at all about and you it. Know,
1: so that never, that doesn't stop any crypto pros.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you, Matt. Um, I will just say, check out your book, Goliath. Um, check you out on Twitter at Matthew Stoller and your Substack newsletter, Big. This was a, a treat to talk to you. Have a great day. All right, thanks a lot. Talk all to right, you later. See you, Matt. Bye.